How are you today? Um, yeah, I'm, I'm doing fine. Got a new computer. I'm going to try this on. Very excited. Getting a new computer is always nice. It is nice, except I've never used a Mac before, and all of this stuff sucks. Never? Not, well, I mean, I used it in, like, elementary school, sixth grade, playing uh, Math Blasters, but never in a quote-unquote professional capacity. Really? So why'd you get a Mac now? Uh, it was cheap, and uh, I kind of like the look of it, and uh, I don't know, trying something new, I guess. That's fair enough. A lot of screenwriting software works better on it. It's it's little. It fits in my backpack. I could put stickers on it. You could put stickers on most things. That's true. They they just look nicer on Max. They do. I don't know, man. I'm conforming. Okay. I'm conforming to the Apple consumerist uh, lifestyle. Lifestyle, yeah. Well, it's only a matter of time before they have all of us. Yeah. Them and Disney. Eh. Disney iPhones. Very excited. Well, the the companies are connected. I think at one time, I'm not sure if Bob Iger is still on the uh, board of Apple, but he might be. Oh, God. But there's there's some intermingling going on there. Gross. And then, of course, Steve Jobs founded Pixar. I didn't even know that. No? It, no, it, I didn't. It amazes me every time I hear it. Well, you know, he was on the cutting edge of most technologies. Wouldn't surprise me that computer animation was something he was into. Yeah. Yeah. Seems more like a Steve Wozniak thing, though. I'm not really familiar with any of these people. Steve Wozniak? He's the guy who made well, the... No, no, no. Uh, I, I know who they are, but it's like, the only the only way I know them is Played through... by Seth Rogen in the film Jobs. That's that's the only way I know him. Yeah. I don't know him personally. That's true. He's a nice guy. He's a jolly old man. Who, Seth Rogen or Steve Wozniak? Steve Wozniak. I'm sure Seth Rogen's decently jolly as well. Well, what'd you watch this week, Chandler? What did I watch? I watched so much this week. You didn't watch An Elephant Sitting Still, though. I did not, but I did watch two parts of Fanny and Alexander. Ooh. And I'm waiting for the next two parts. I watched, uh, oh god. I watched Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> a classic. How was that? Every, um, I, I realized in watching Revenge of the Sith that 90% of the prequels is just... Horribly staged green screen conversations, shot and shot, reverse shot, with not a single practical thing in the room, followed by ridiculously outlandish action sequences. And Revenge of the Sith is the best of the three because the action sequences are completely ridiculous. And as you told me, every line of dialogue is very memeable. It's so wonderful. I love that movie. Disproportionate to its quality. Oh yeah, it it is it is a time. Uh, I will say going into it, I was like, "This is the one I remember liking as a kid." Is it actually decent? And uh, it is not. It is bad. Oh no, it's absolutely terrible. It is just as bad as the others, but just in its own little charming way. Well, it's nowhere near as bad as Attack of the Clones. That's true. I can sit through Revenge of the Sith quite happily. I can't with Attack of the I Clones. can sit through Revenge of the Sith because it's the memeiest. I can sit through the Phantom Menace because I genuinely enjoy the pod racing. Not much else, but I enjoy the pod racing. I enjoy the subtle racism in the Phantom Menace. That's true. Yes. that That's when the racism was at its most egregious. It aged poorly before it came out. Yeah. Well, everything in the prequels aged poorly before it came out. 
Uh, Attack of the Clones, however, there's not a single moment where I'm like, oh, that's cool. It is all infuriatingly horrid. It's it's a giant pile of shit. Especially the conveyor belt scene. That's the worst one. That's the one, you know a sequence is bad when some years later after watching it, you, someone reminds you of the sequence and you just think to yourself, did that really happen? Yep. Was that real? And I know that there's a lot of people out there who hate The Last Jedi. I will never be able to take anyone seriously that says The Last Jedi is worse than the prequels. Because say what you will about the new Star Wars films, it's very hit or miss, but every single one of them is ten times better than any of the prequels. See, I can see... I can see the warped thinking that would get you to maybe liking Revenge of the Sith or maybe The Phantom Menace more. Mm-hmm. But if someone were to just flat out say to me that Attack of the Clones is a better movie than The Last Jedi, mm-hmm. I don't think I would much care for any other opinion that they had. Yeah. The thing is, even when I was watching the prequels, I'm like, okay, you know what? These are awful but I have to say they're very different and there's not much like it. That's not necessarily a good thing. But when I was like watching little clips of the new Star Wars, I'm like, okay, these newer Star Wars movies are a lot like the older ones. Nothing like the prequels. But then again, there is nothing like the prequels. And it's for the best. Well, here's the thing about the, the prequels. I can say that in like concept, the ideas behind them, the world building... It's a hell of a lot better than the new ones because the new ones are just build, building upon yeah. old stuff. They're rehashing and yeah. it's getting old quickly. And what the prequels have going for them is that they did try something completely new. And I applaud them for that. And regardless of the movies, if you put them aside, I do have positive feelings about that. The world of the prequels. Oh, I agree. Because as somebody who watched the prequels a lot as a kid because they played a lot of the video games, my appreciation for the media that the prequels spawned made my appreciation of the prequels a lot bigger than it should have been. But going back as an adult who doesn't hasn't played any of the games in a long time or watched any of the shows and just looking at them as objectively Star Wars movies, I'm like, these are terrible. Absolutely awful. Yeah. That was interesting. I didn't expect us to have a prequel discussion today. Well, you know, they're they're it's a hot topic. It, it as al- we get into the last Star is. Wars movie. Oh yeah. It is a hot topic. Oh yeah. But I understand that we both watched uh Won't You Be My Neighbor? No, what is it? A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. I'm thinking of the documentary. Yeah, the the documentary is a very different thing. I have not seen the documentary, but I You want really to. should because it's really good. Okay. But you saw A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. I did. I saw A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. I saw it alone after watching Parasite for the third time. Oh, no. And I should have done it in the reverse order. I should have watched A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood and suffered first and then go back to Parasite. Yeah. Yeah, that hindsight, that was a bad decision. Before we get into a bulk of the discussion, did you watch Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood as a child? Yes. Okay. Because I did not. Okay. I don't think I watched it all that much. Yeah. But I did watch it. But you were familiar enough with it to understand the sort of, uh, the presentation the film was going for? Yes. So, here's my question, a little bit of a tangent. Mm-hmm. What did you watch, like, as a very young kid, not as, not like, 
when you got old enough to watch Disney and Nickelodeon and stuff like that. What did you watch when you were really young? Oh, Sesame Street. So that was your thing? That was my thing with Did you Sesame ever watch Street. the Teletubbies? I did. I did. And uh, there's a lot of shows that I can go back to as an adult and think, what the hell? Teletubbies yeah. is kind of one of them, but there's a charm there. Uh, JJ the Jet Airplane is just three different levels of nightmare fuel. Uh, I like Dragon Tales. Oh, Dragon Tales. Dragon Tales is pretty great. That's that's one where I, I rarely think about it anymore, but then it comes up randomly. And I'm like, oh, I'd kind of like to rewatch an episode of that just to see it. Yeah. Uh, the big I ones, never do. Yeah, the big ones for me were uh, Sesame Street, Blue's Clues, and Tom's the Tank Engine. Ooh, Thomas the Tank Engine. That's Thomas a the Tank Engine is still very charming. Oh, Blue's yeah. so, Clues is also similarly charming. I was really into trains as a kid. I that was Blue, my thing. Blue's Clues walked so the prequels could run. That's all I'm going to say. Both of them are just weird people in front of green screens for the entirety <laughs> of their runtime. But Blue's Clues holds up. Well, that's because it, it knows what it is. It's not trying to be a, a space opera. But yeah, no, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood used to come on a lot as I was a kid, or when I was a kid, and even as a kid, I watched it, and it kind of creeped me out. It does have, like, it's kind of, the format is kind of creepy if you're not used to it. Yeah. Because it's just a guy who is talking directly to the camera. Well, it's not even that. The camera's almost you, and then yeah. there's a whole bunch of other weird things that go on. It's not even the fact that he's talking to the camera because that happens a lot in like Blues Clues and stuff. It's the it's the dollhouse aesthetic that always kind of creeps me out. I think out. it's it's the talking to the camera with the other stuff. Yes, yes. That if he wasn't talking to the camera, the other stuff might seem a bit normal. Yeah, because it's a bit more. Then it'd be more self-contained and kind of a fantasy world, but it's very much uh, Mr. Rogers is bridging the gap, bringing you into this kind of weird, kind of meta world thing yeah, with puppets he, and I, I don't know it's, it's yeah it's strange but even as a as a kid i could tell he was genuine oh certainly yes it's just not so i just much preferred elmo and big bird because it was at least interesting to look at as a kid and i still have a soft spot in my heart for puppets there was some interesting stuff in mr rogers neighborhood yeah some the if I'm, if I'm going to jump way ahead and in the movie, I, I haven't really thought about Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood in a long time, and I forgot most of it. And the only thing I really remember was the opening theme and then, like, the, the set itself. But the one part that the movie brought up was when it went into the the picture-in-picture picture and the little, uh, like, how-they-made-it dock of newspapers. Yeah. When it did that, I was suddenly remembering of all like the all of those little mini documentaries of like how they made it kind of stuff that was in uh, Mister Rogers' Neighborhood. Yeah, and that of the whole nostalgia trip that is these Mister Rogers throwback movies. That was the part I was happy to remember about the show because I really loved watching as a kid, like the just how things were made, that kind of stuff. And yeah, it's, it's very educational, but you know, it's, 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 it's the same concept I applied to like teachers where a lot of the stuff that you're learning isn't necessarily interesting, 
but it's the presenter's passion for the material that helps it stick in your brain. And even though a lot of the stuff in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood was, you know, not necessarily the most entertaining things to learn, he definitely said them in a way that was earnest that allowed those lessons to stick with you. It It's almost like if you're being honest and genuine in front of a camera, the audience can tell. Yep. And boy, was he genuine. And it helps. I, I it was, He was almost genuine to a fault, as the movie sort of proclaims. Yeah. So what did what did you think of the movie, Chandler? It was okay. <laughs> did you? Because I wasn't a hundred percent sure. What was your star rating? Officially? My star rating was like a, a two and a half out of five, so like a five out of ten, completely average. Because I bumped it up to three, just because I couldn't find the two and a yeah, half. Yeah, no, I saw that. I'll find the two and a half eventually, because I would agree with that rating more. Again, it's a lot like the actual Mister Rogers, where he's it, it's a very genuine movie. It's just a little confused as to what it was trying to say because it's it's a movie that by the title and by the introduction you would think it's a movie about Mr. Rogers but it isn't really a movie about Mr. Rogers because for a majority of the movie Tom Hanks is kind of sidelined. It's sort of like what Mr. Rogers represented more so than him himself and I found that I'm like, okay, so if this movie is about the sort of kindness that Mr. Rogers preaches, not necessarily about the man himself, then why have him in it at all? It kind of seemed like a, a, a moral story about being nice to each other, that they kind of needed one thing to sell it, so they put Mr. Rogers in there. I think the, the operating idea behind the, the film is that they were going for not Mr. Rogers himself as like kind of leaving him as kind of this enigmatic angelic figure of kindness and goodness Uh and not delve too much into that and more use his effect on people. Because ultimately that's, I think, what the important thing that they found in Mr. Rogers was not what he did or who he was but how he affected people. And so this, the narrative of the film is about one person, a case study almost of one person that interacted with Mr. Rogers and was a better person because of it. Yeah. And that's the, that's where they're coming from. And I understand that. I don't like it though. I don't like it either. And I I definitely think that it's a good message. The drama was well-developed. I thought the lead was actually pretty good. He has the most depressed face, just natural bone structure um, that I think fit the character really well. But I just didn't find much of this compelling. Maybe because the huge thing was that it was a very personal journey that is... It's a personal journey of a character I don't really know much or care much about. So the thing with me is I thought the film was too much of like telling your feelings than showing it. And I understand that's Mr. Rogers shtick of like, of expressing yourself, but I don't think there was enough because it's a movie first and foremost. Yep. Enough visual representation of the character's journey and clever ways of presenting it. 
I felt it was just a series of scenes of him not expressing his feelings to Mr. Rogers and getting angry. And then suddenly he's not. Maybe not that, maybe not all that suddenly, but it, it did. Yeah. Some of these conversations felt too on the nose and some of the dialogue could have been more subtle or dealing with with these things in a different way than just talking about it all the time. Yeah, it was just a very safe presentation, safe directed movie, which is weird because they do take these turns into something a little more interesting oh, visually. The the like the beginning. The beginning, well I was going to say the midway, the midpoint of the film I think or like 2 thirds of the way. Dream sequence. That was weird. I don't know weird. where it came from. It was a I liked too it. too weird. I liked it, but... I wish the film would have done something more like that for the whole runtime. Maybe not that specifically, but something a bit more where it's showing the character's journey. I was interested at the beginning because it started off as an episode in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. So I'm like, okay, maybe they'll frame this whole thing as an episode. When in reality, it's only really used to begin and bookend the film. And it allows for some decently clever scene transitions when they use the whole dollhouse uh, aesthetic thing to cover the typical boring, like, skyline shots. But other than that, I'm like, okay, what was even the point of having that intro beginning if it's just, if it's really only used to open and shut the movie? And again, that scene, I liked it. It was weird, but it just felt so out of place when the rest of the movie is so tame in comparison. It was out of place. I would have preferred more more of that and have it not feel out of place. Yeah. So that's why I feel like as a whole, this movie is kind of like genuine, but doesn't really understand what it is or what it's trying to do. The other thing that I found kind of disjointed with the film was I found it to be f unintentionally funny at points. Like when? The first moment that I really noticed it was when in the very beginning... Mr. Rogers is going through his little picture um, presentation and he gets to, we see our main character for the first time. Yeah, his uh, face. Vogel. His face was hilarious. It was. And that was, that's what I thought was so strange. Cause I'm like, okay, so you're presenting this as a kid's episode, but then you have this horribly realistic bloodied face of the main character. So I'm like, okay, that's a little... If you're if you're framing it as a children's episode of TV, that's a little too much. That's what I mean by like disjointed. There were parts of conversations where the acting and the dialogue just didn't line up a hundred percent, and I felt it almost it it veered into melodramatic and therefore funny for me at points. Yeah. And I was very uncomfortable during the whole minute of silence. I won't lie. It was weird. Yeah. It, okay. So during the minute of silence and it goes, it, the camera looks at all the other people around the restaurant that, that felt very Fellini-esque to me as something like out of eight, eight and a half of where these saw these faces out of the crowd and the camera looks over them in these quiet, deadly quiet shots. Again, like there's some really interesting filmmaking choices being made in some of these sequences where the reality of the situation is being heightened like that. And then the dream sequence and then Mr. Rogers stuff. 
agree. But then the rest of the film is this very down-to-earth drama that seems a little too melodramatic and on the nose at points. But how did you feel about Tom Hanks? Well, Tom Hanks is great. Yeah, I thought he was wonderful. Yeah, I can't. I can never complain. He, it, I don't think it was the best thing I've ever seen. It, he definitely captured that spirit. It was the right performance for that film, and I do really enjoy the last shot of the of the movie. I don't remember what it was of him playing the piano. Oh and yeah, and the lights slowly go off. Yeah. I, I think the staging of that whole scene was a little wonky. I. But I do like the shot itself. I, I thought the whole staging of that thing was just a little too uh, dramatic, I guess, stylistic for what the rest of the thing oh, is. Oh yeah, and I thought there was a, I thought it was a, kind of a strange shot where he hits the piano at the end. He, because you know, obviously he references earlier in the film that that's something you kind of do when you just got to get those emotions out. And then I thought, okay, he's getting these emotions out, but where do these emotions come from? I guess that's maybe the point: is that nobody is uh, free of these um, emotions. But I guess, I don't know, maybe I was hoping to see where it came from. But no, I think he's fine. He's, yeah. I think he's, no, he's really great. Good. Yeah. Best part of, of the movie. Do, what do you think is the best Tom Hanks performance? Just out of curiosity. Oof. Now I'm trying to remember all the Tom Hanks performances. You know, he, he's never bad. But he's rarely, like, amazing. But I really, really like him in Captain Phillips. I, confession, I never saw Captain Phillips. Captain Phillips is actually really good. It's, it is, of all of the dad movies where Tom Hanks plays historical figures, it's easily the best. It's a genuinely great movie. Very tense. I'm gonna say... I'm just looking at his his IMDb page right here. And the thing that that catches me the most is his role in Catch Me If You Can. Oh, yeah. He's great in that. He's very professionally bewildered in that movie. Yeah, I don't know. It's not speaking to me as as necessarily his best performance, but as a performance I remember liking – and at this moment, I'm going to say, that's my favorite Tom Hanks performance. I'm just waiting for the day that he gets the Henry Fonda treatment and he gets to play as a villain. That'd be, that'd be nice. That'd be very nice. Maybe Toy Story 5. Ooh. Oh. That's a little, a little tidbit for us to think about. Should we jump into the next movie? The movie we're a lot more excited to talk about. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. I forgot about The Irishman. I, 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 this entire conversation, I've just been thinking, okay, can we get to The Irishman, please? So, The Irishman. The Irishman is a three and a half hour long movie that Jacob has watched twice. In one week. In one week. Not one actual week, but the span of five, six days. Yep. And you saw it in your... Did you ever see it in a theater? Or was it no, it room? was just in privacy of my own home. I went down to a theater and I saw it. I was going to, but was the for Loft budget, playing for it? Budget, yeah, oh yeah. Oh, okay. Of course the Loft yeah. was playing it. But for yeah. budgetary reasons, I, I decided to wait until it came out because I could see it for free. Yeah. No, you're right. And you got a good setup. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, not too shabby. I saw it in the Phoenix uh, film bar. Ooh. I don't know if you've ever been. It's, I have not. It's a, it's a decent little indie theater. Uh, seats aren't amazing, which 
I only noticed after a three and a half hour runtime. But it was great because, you know, if it's a movie that's going to be playing in on Netflix in like a week or two, and it's playing in a theater and people go to see it, it's because they want to experience it on the biggest screen possible. These are fans of Martin Scorsese showing up. Not looking, there's no one there just looking to kill time. People that actively uh, seeked out this experience. And how so was it? I, it was great. I love The Irishman. Are you talking about the experience or the movie itself? Well, the experience. And here's another question along with that is, because yes. obviously you saw it in the theater and it is a long movie. How was that for you, the pacing wise? And then how was that for the kind of general vibes of the theater and the audience in general? I never saw... Okay, this is one of the main reasons I feel like this movie is incredible. When it was when it ended, I honestly thought we had about 40 minutes left. I think for a three and a half hour long movie, it flies by. That's always been uh, Thelma Schumacher's like talent. I think it's part of the reason why I love Goodfellas so much is that so much of these, so many of these movies that Robert or uh, Scorsese makes, the editing is just airtight. And I think this is probably the most. I mean, there are definitely moments that have ha- went on a little too long, but I never felt like even in those moments was there wasted time. Well, let's let's discuss our general feelings first, and then we'll go into the big feelings. Okay. Well, I think I made my opinions pretty clear. I'm a big fan of this. If, if I'm looking in the, uh, of the general Martin Scorsese movies I've seen, which is a good amount, not all of them, but a good amount, I rank this as his third best movie. Wow. Third best. Third best. Obviously... Goodfellas, Goodfellas Taxi, Taxi Driver, Driver, The Irishman, right above King of Comedy. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. What about you? Okay. So let's... I, I feel I need to express my general opinion of Scorsese, his general filmography, before I delve into this film. Cause this so film go is straight definitely... to Taxi Driver. Yeah. Well, Taxi <laughs> Driver and a few other of his movies. So Scor- Scorsese is a hit or miss director with me. I'm not as enthralled with his filmography as a lot of other people seem to be. And I have yet to figure out precisely why. And I have yet to rewatch Taxi Driver because I have a feeling I will like it a lot more now. But at this point, it's partially just to annoy Chandler and to keep up the the joke of me not liking Taxi Driver. It's a Jacob Kaufman meme. Because uh, clearly, Taxi Driver is one of those things where I can understand the artistry of the film and I can, I know on a objective level, it's one of the best ever made. I do not care for it. That's precisely, interesting that you say that because that's precisely how I feel about Raging Bull. Yeah, Raging Bull is also another film, another one that's considered very good. Yeah. That I'm. Some people consider it his best. Well. And I've seen it twice and both times I was, eh. So, with that understanding... Yeah. Well, so that there are some Scorsese films that I really quite enjoy. The Departed, Wolf of Wall Street. Eh. Uh, I think Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, I have a much higher opinion of that than you do. I think that's the only Scorsese film that I have a higher opinion of than you do. Yep. And I quite enjoyed Silence. Yeah, that one was good. Although I wouldn't say it's amazing it's not, or anything. It's not great. 
No. But I quite enjoyed it. But I, I did find myself liking it. Very different for Scorsese. Yeah. And then again, I am a, a big fan of Japanese cinema and obviously it takes place well, in I'm Japan. a big fan of uh, religious cinema. Not necessarily films about religion, but films that explore religion. So, The Irishman is pretty good. It it I enjoyed it a lot. Damn. It was also too long. A bit. I think this is another one. This is kind of like my opinion of Taxi Driver where I can split my mind of the objective part of me is like that was very well made, but I don't like it. Where here it was like that I like it a lot. But I think things could be cut. This does not need to be three and a half hours. Well, that's the thing is... Three hours, out, maybe. Yeah. I don't think much can be cut. Well, when I got out of the movie, I just remember thinking, okay, that was long. But I didn't think about that until I was driving home. Where I'm like, okay, yeah, that was definitely long, but I can't say there was a single moment where I was, like, checking my watch or wondering how long we've been in this. Because even, even the less, um, you know... The less uh, important scenes were still entertaining. Now that I'm I'm thinking about it, it's I might have liked to have seen it in a theater one of the two times. That I think that experience has to be different than at home. Yeah, and I'd be curious whenever you get around to watching it at home, what that experience is like. Well, I, how many times did you pause it? Plenty of times, but I always pause movies at home. Okay, that's fair. It is a rare occasion. Even movies I like, I will pause and just my my mind gets very distracted during almost anything. And I, I need to like get up and walk around every once in a while. And that's one of the things I love about a theater is that you can't puts my mind in a different think a different headspace where I don't have to I I don't think about getting up. I don't have the option whatsoever. Not tempted by anything. And the experience is completely different. But here's the thing with The Irishman. It's meant to be seen on Netflix. I don't know about meant to be seen. Well, okay. So when I say meant, I don't mean like Scorsese was crafting it to be seen on a TV. Yeah. I mean that... The majority of people are going to watch it on Netflix. Yes. So that is the unintentional primary mode that people will be seeing it. Yeah. It's not a movie that was given a, much of a release and more so than almost every other movie that comes out in a theater where it's expected to have a release. This one, Scorsese knew it was you know a Netflix movie and I'd be curious to ask him if that changed any of the decision making, whether... It was a maybe a shorter film before, and he felt a longer film could be more conducive to a Netflix run because longer films don't do well in theaters. I, I think that definitely had a, uh, an impact. I'd be I'd be curious to know. I, I I feel like it has to just because Netflix was definitely the uh, proprietor of the binge watch. I think one of the first uh, um, people who actually marketed it as binge watching so i can see that's you know when you're making it for uh, a company that is so associated with that method of watching that something a little longer definitely wouldn't phase them it certainly they certainly enabled him to make it yes but 
Yeah. Uh, how long is Wolf of Wall Street? Because Wolf of Wall Street was pushing three hours. Yeah, it's two and a half to three, somewhere in there. I feel like with a, with certain directors, like Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I was also pushing three hours. You definitely, there, there becomes a point where it doesn't become much of an issue, but three and a half hours, even for those directors, is a long time. You know that long movies are my thing. I know, yes. I love long movies. Yep. And I think part of it is that when you take a longer time to do things, there are things that you can do in a longer narrative that don't work in a shorter one. I think Lawrence of Arabia is a prime example. Yeah, like where things would be considered time-wasting if it was in a shorter film that aren't necessarily time-wasting in a longer film where you have room to breathe. And the point of the narrative is that it's long. Uh-huh. I don't know what the greater point of that was, but I I do like this movie a lot, in spite of the fact that I think it could be there's some things, particularly on a second viewing, where I noticed if you needed if you needed to cut this down, you could, and it wouldn't have lost anything. Runtime aside. I think one of the main things that makes me like this movie so much is just how I kind of put this in my review, but a lot of these kinds of movies, and I say these kinds of movies in a very broad sense of the word, because a lot of this reminds me of something like Goodfellas or Casino or Wolf of Wall Street, where it's about insane excess followed by a tragic fall. Movies like Casino and Wolf of Wall Street, which I still think are good and fun, I feel like they don't necessarily have that fall as hard as they should. The highs don't necessarily get buried by the lows, and that's my main problem with the Wolf of Wall Street. This one, it's like it's like it's almost like the complete opposite of Goodfellas, where Goodfellas you have Henry Hill who's living the high life, and then the last like hour is that drug fueled descent into madness. This right here. The Irishman, it's you have those highs, but you never feel like uh, Frank is enjoying that life. The term that I used was blue collar mobster, where he's not in it for the fame, the money or the, the, you know, the excess, but he's in it just because it's a, a power position and it's something that he knows. He's a soldier. He does what he's told and he asks no questions. And that's how he gets to get, you know, that high up in that world. But the last like hour of this movie is so much more focused with the the end of that timeline than any of his other movies. It's it's a movie about where we're focused on this guy and how he rises up through the ranks, and then the last hour is we get to see every character get old, we get to see how all these people end up, either in jail or alone with no family, because they've been ostracized for what they've chosen to do with their lives. And uh a constant thing that happens in this movie is when we're introduced to a character, we get a little freeze frame, their name, time, and method of death. And I think that's the whole heart of the movie is this constant reminder that this kind of stuff really never pays out in the end. And he reminds you harder than he's done in any of those other movies. It's certainly a movie that is focused on mortality from the beginning of this kind of fatalism from... The, from the very beginning, you are reminded that everyone here isn't necessarily going to end up in a happy place. Yep. In that sense, it's quite good. 
and that last shot in particular the the ending again this is i'm just struggling with my own opinion here where i think the ending the last half hour really drags really because that's what i find the best part of the whole and movie. it's also the best part yeah again i'm struggling with my own opinion here that is particularly on a a rewatch there are things that most certainly could have been cut out to the same effect maybe maybe not the same kind of because it does it's like letting the it's like once the party is over everyone's gone and you're just left with the mess and just like this the fun is over yeah and purposefully so and in that sense it does a great job of evoking the loneliness and the sadness of the end of Frank's life. And I think they could have done it shorter, but at the same time, it, it was impactful. Oh, God, especially when he tries to see his daughter at the bank. That was... Oh, my God. So we're talking about this this narrative that's three and a half hours long. Uh-huh. And I, I don't know if you picked up on it or if you have the same feelings about it. But I think it, I think this falls into a, a good old classic five act structure. You know, I'm I know I've, I'm the I'm the go to screenwriting guy, but I'm still not entirely familiar with the five act structure. So the thing I go back to all the time with five act structure is it's a Shakespearean thing. Yeah. Of Hamlet, where it's all built around this central part. The main climax, the the height of the action, and the character's goals is in the center of the film. And the first part, the first two acts are the build-up to that, and then the last two acts are the fallout from that. In this, I don't think that there's a clear-cut case for a five-act structure, but you have the first 45 minutes or so is Frank's rise in the underworld. The next 45 minutes is his rise and friendship with Jimmy Hoffa. Uh-huh. And then you have this kind of central part of the narrative where Hoffa is – the, the FBI is closing in and, and things – Hoffa's yelling at people. Mm-hmm. And Frank is at his the height of his influence with Hoffa and the mob. And – then as soon as the then they go to prison or Hoffa does and that's the that's like the, the the start of the last half of the film where it's everything up and the next act is everything up until Jimmy Hoffa is shot spoiler alert and then of course you have a very clear the thing that really turned me on to this whole thing you have a very clear final act of the film very where clear it's old age. Where all the timelines sort of converge. It's like the last half hour is just a reflection of the previous three. Yeah, it just... I wasn't so much looking at it from like a structural standpoint, but just trying to understand how this film was constructed as a three and a half hour long narrative. Because that's no easy thing to do. It really isn't. And it's... There are hundreds of scenes in this film. And locations and things. It's not a, this is, 
mind-boggling to think about the production of this. Oh yeah, particularly th- thinking that it's it, it's a period piece. And I think it's. I also saw that it was Scorsese's most expensive movie. Oh well, yeah. I think a lot of that has to do with de aging, though. Yeah, probably. But it's also. I was just trying to think, particularly because I, I do have this love of long movies, and I find it interesting of how different directors structure and pace long movies. So that's something I, I really was thinking about, particularly in my second viewing. Uh-huh. Which on my second viewing, I both loved it and found more problems with it. So you didn't love it the first time. I thought it was good. Okay. I just loved it more. I liked it more the second time. Yeah. But also found more things that... I definitely think it has flaws. I do agree that it may be a little too long. Uh, I think the early de-aging stuff looks absolutely horrendous. Not horrendous. That's that's a harsh word. But when Frank meets Russell, and they're talking over the car, specifically their mouth movements were very... Ugh, kind of creeps me out, kind of grossed me out. And I'll be honest, I don't even know what scenes Al Pacino's de-aged. Here's the thing with the whole de-aging thing. I felt, you know, they they looked old from the first minute. From every single minute of the film, they all looked old. Yeah. And it didn't even, like, the de-aging wasn't even that... I didn't mind the de-aging, ever. Although it wasn't necessarily the best... Like, if they were trying to de-age them, I don't think they necessarily succeeded. I don't think so either. But I didn't mind. I didn't mind either because even in the parts where it didn't, they didn't look amazing. I think a huge part of why this movie works is because it's De Niro, Pesci, and Al Pacino. And I'm not just saying that just because they're great actors with great chemistry. It's because they're such important figures in this genre of film that this whole reflective nature of this whole genre of film as a whole just is a lot more effective when you have those three characters in it especially since all three of these actors really haven't had anything amazing in a long time the fact that all three of them are in it and they're all fantastic it really adds to the whole just the general uh presentation of this movie and the sort of emotional aspects as well or the fil- the, the reflective nature of it all mm-hmm. and i think that the most the crazy the best part to me is again going back to that that ending or that the final half hour is that it's almost like Scorsese is trying to right his wrongs not necessarily wrongs but show just what how important having that epiphany is to your to your past because I think the the craziest most tragic part about Frank as a character is that he never really has that he doesn't really have that guilt. He doesn't really have that epiphany. He doesn't really look back on his past. And I think it's most apparent in that one scene where the FBI people come up to him and tell him... It's like his lawyer, I think, died. Yeah. And he replies with, who got him? And just the most quizzical look they give him and they tell him it's cancer. Even in his old age, he's just not understanding that these people aren't invincible. It's you will die regardless of how well you protect yourself. What was your favorite part of the movie? Whether that's a scene or actor or I don't know, just something. I loved the, um, the, I love the way that the, the assassination scene in the restaurant was filmed. 
in the restaurant. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, okay. The one where they kill the crazy dude. I forget his name. There's so many characters in this movie. The one where he he chooses the guns and he's sort of narrating how he how he goes through thinking this strategy. And then I feel like this is this is another part that feeds into this larger um uh change uh, this sort of somber approach to this uh, genre of movie is that a lot of the assassinations are just so uncinematic and matter of fact very blunt very blunt like that restaurant scene a lot of they're just walking down the street and they shoot a guy and keep walking and it's filmed in a master shot that restaurant scene um the scene where they kill uh jimmy hoffa i think both of those were just very a lot of subtle buildups to something that just is over in an instant and you go right back to just walk in her casual life, especially the Jimmy Hoffa scene. So obviously, spoiler alert, spoiler alert for this whole movie. It's about the journey, really. So I don't think you could spoil it. It really is. Yeah. Well, obviously, you know that Jimmy Hoffa dies. Everyone knows that. Um, as soon as you mention Jimmy Hoffa and there's mobsters and people are getting shot, you know Jimmy Hoffa's dying. But to go into more specifics, the the way that he's killed in this movie... Uh, Frank takes him to a house where he supposedly have a meeting with another mob guy. He walks in. Jimmy Hoffa sees that there's nobody else, and he's immediately sort of thrown into the kind of panic we haven't seen the whole movie. And he tries to get out, and he tells Frank, let's go, which is even more horrible because he trusted him right up to the bitter end. And he just, he doesn't turn him, doesn't turn to him, doesn't look at him, just shoots him twice in the back of the head and leaves. And not only is that scene, you know, just so matter-of-fact and blunt and uncinematic, but it, there's a very obvious parallel to the way that Tommy DeVito dies in Goodfellas. But that scene in Goodfellas, there's a lot of cinema to it. You know, he gets shot, you see the blood splurt and the nice little framing of him plopping. This is like the complete opposite of that. And I feel like that's how a lot of the violence is handled in this movie, and it makes it really effective but it normalizes it in this world in a way that it doesn't hasn't really been in the other Scorsese movies. So I'm I was sitting here as you were talking through Jimmy Hoffa's death. Uh-huh. I'm going to be honest, I was getting a little emotional cuz yeah, strangely enough and I another thing about this film is I can't explain it yet by far my favorite part of this movie is Al Pacino as Jimmy Hoffa, <laughs> by far. Yes. That is what He's I enjoyed great. about the movie the most. It's the character I liked the most. Yeah. And I loved him. And there are very few movies where something bad happens to a character where you you know it's coming and there, there are very select few movies where I will actually start talking to the movie, kind of un, yeah. un, unconsciously start telling the character. I, I was I stood up and I started telling Jimmy, "Don't go in the house. Please don't go in the house. I don't want you to go in the house." And I just it it was so sad. It is. I love Jimmy. And there's a, I read a review of this film critic that I enjoyed that has he has um cla- he has categorized Al Pacino's career into two different phases, um, and he calls it pre hoo ha and post hoo ha. <laughs> 
<laughs> and he said something along the lines of, this is the best utilization of post-Hua Al Pacino that has ever been put to film. And I'm like, yeah, I agree. Well, it's his best performance since Jack and Jill. Wow! Al Pacino! It's not Al anymore. It's Dunk. Dunkachino? Don't mind if I do. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so Al Pacino at this point has is like this is almost notorious for having just a ridiculous amount of energy, but I think it works so well for the Jimmy Hoffa character. Just I to, loved every moment of him he, cursing out people and yelling. It's crazy because when I was seeing it in the theater, everybody knows this this movie's been marketed since it was announced, the big reunite uh, reuniting of Pesci, De Niro, Pacino, whatever. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people don't understand that this is the first Al Pacino uh, Scorsese collaboration. And obviously, his name is synonymous with this movie. And even even then, even you know everyone showing up there knowing he's going to be in it, when he showed up for the first time, there was a few people that applauded and were like, oh, yes. <laughs> well, I can pinpoint the moment in the film where I fell in love with Al Pacino's character. Huh. And it's when he buys he they're at a picnic table and he gets Peggy, little Peggy, a Sunday. And it's just like this Sunday is just just for me and Peggy. And he starts <laughs> fighting with Frank with the spoon in the very background that you barely notice it. And it's just he has kind of like this boyish energy to him. Yeah. But at the same time, he's also this draconian not not a mob boss but a a union boss cursing people out and very much kind of egocentric of someone who believes that it's not the union it's his union and that because he specifically states at one point in the film do you at the very beginning when we first hear his voice on the phone frank do you want to be a part of history because he sees himself as like very self-important yep so there's this Fascinating. It's just a fascinating character, and I loved watching him because of this kind of dichotomy between this kind of self-important man who can't back down and ultimately gets him killed because of that. Yeah, and also this kind of this this sweet guy who just loves Sundays and loves little Peggy and is a good friend to Frank. Well, yeah, I think I think a large part of why this movie works is because of Al Pacino, because obviously you can't really. Um, you don't really get to see how horrible these people are in most movies like this because they're surrounded by horrible people as well. It's just a bunch of evil people doing evil things that looks cool because they're the people around you think it's cool and they get to enjoy it. The fact that you have, you know, Al Pacino or Jimmy Hoffa, who's not, he's by no means an innocent man. He no. is just a lot better at making the bad seem good. And the when you have him in this movie, he's almost like he's a wrinkly old puppy dog you want to protect. Yes. And th- we really, I honestly think you really don't get a, 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 a firm sense of who Frank is until he kills Jimmy Hoffa. Because that is what sort of brings us into the last act of this movie. And that's when we kind of have that reflection period where after we see that moment, that last horrible, desperate moment, that moment of a complete lack of empathy, that sort of frames the rest of the movie where we're like, oh, he's kind of been this way this whole time. 
just because it's Jimmy Hoffa doesn't make him any better or worse. It just it's a lot easier to see how a bad guy is bad when he kills a good guy. Supposed good guy. Someone you like. Yeah. Someone you know. Because everyone else who Frank has shot, we don't know. Yeah. And it's, again, it's interesting because the first part and the last part of this movie are Frank's story. But I think when we're introduced to Jimmy Hoffa, it becomes... It's Hoffa's story. It really is Hoffa's story. That's that's why I think it's the five-act narrative. Because you have Hoffa's three-act story in the middle, bookended by Frank's rise and then solitude at the end. Al Pacino doing a wonderful little subtle Irish accent. Was he? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. I didn't notice. That's, that, that's the thing that really got, I don't know, something about the Irish accent got to me. I didn't even hear that once. That's interesting. It's very subtle, but it is there. Sometimes you can hear it more than other times. Well, that, okay, so then we talked about De Niro and Pacino. What did you think about Joe Pesci in this movie? Uh, Joe Pesci was despite the fact that this movie takes place over like 40 years was an old man from the first scene to the last and i again not as the uh, i i love goodfellas not as big of a fan as, of it as you are yeah but it was wonderful seeing him back on the screen and it, mob grandpa that's what he was he really was and uh, he he was the complete opposite of his typical scorsese characters Yes. In a way that I think I think a lot of people sort of um, have this notion that bigger acting is better acting. Um, I think it takes a lot to sort of command a presence with little to no um, presence. Uh, and I think Pesci was fantastic here because he I he was like he was like a receptionist to the shadows just you could always tell that even though he was slower, he was a lot more subdued, a lot more um, careful with his words. I felt from the moment he was on the screen that he was just a a presence, a presence that doesn't show himself often, but a presence to be feared nonetheless. No, it's interesting, and I think Joe Pesci embodies this kind of that. Like you said, there is so much horrible stuff that happens in this movie, and these are all horrible people, and yet none of them seem horrible. Yeah. Like, the, you see Frank do terrible things, but it doesn't really properly register that they're terrible until after he kills Hoffa. And likewise with Joe Pesci, who is ordering and orchestrating with business-like precision of this this mob and killings and all that and nonchalantly telling Frank oh, you know what to do and yet it all seems very human and kind of grounded in a strange way mm-hmm. at times it was a little I, I like I wanted more but it was perfect like stylistically the film is very consistent in the fact that these are all horrible people but we are kind of seeing the normal life of these horrible people. Yeah. Because, you know, there's there's weddings and there's a car ride and there there's a lot of kind of the mundane mm-hmm. stuff. It's a lot of, there's a lot of business, business meetings and parties and yeah. stuff like that and hotel room nights that 
None of it's the the stuff of like blowing up cars and places. It's just they're quick cutaway shots most of the time. It's great. It's interesting because in those in those other mob movies, you know, the the casinos and the Goodfellas, we have the main characters who are typically younger, mm-hmm. and the characters that they work for, like Tony, the big guy. Um, he you know he's quoted as being slow. But because he didn't have to move for everybody, we always see those stories in the perspective of the younger people who definitely enjoy the excess and see the business thing as a sort of uh, uh, a way to get to that. But in those movies, we always see the higher ups, the bigger guys sort of take the excesses as secondary and focus more on the business side. I felt like this entire movie was more focused on the business side of these criminal dealings. And I felt that was not only reflected in the characters and the writing, but I feel like the entire directing style of the movie, the presentation, was just a slowed down, more methodical version of the kind of things we saw in Goodfellas and Casino. Not a huge amount of crazy camera work. No, it's very simply shot for the most part. It's very simply shot, but it's very precise and it shows you exactly what you need to see. Yeah, I was noticing this. A lot of of the scenes are just master shot. Shot, reverse shot, simple, effective filmmaking. Yep. And of course, at the beginning of the film, this was very noticeable in my second viewing, is that there's a lot more kind of creativity and energy to the filmmaking. Particularly, there's a there's a few trademark Scorsese uh, crane shots of where it starts off really wide and then pushes way, way in on someone. And they're very kind of almost violent crane shots. And there's a lot of fun editing in the beginning, almost kind of French New Wavy at times. Yeah. Particularly the very beginning where it's the, the title cards, I Heard You Paint Houses, where it cuts from the, the screen. Each is like the individual words of that. That was, that was very reminiscent of kind of the French New Wave and kind of having fun with the editing. That's what he did with a lot of his earlier movies. Then over the course of the film, it's less... The filmmaking is less exuberant, less kind of varied, and particularly at the very end, it's it's to the T, wide shot, shot reverse shot, and that's all. And that that really does highlight over the course of this three hour long narrative narrative, the feeling, evoking the feeling of old age and just solitude through the filmmaking. I think we can end it right there, honestly. Oh, if you wanted to. That was a good it was a good summation. Are you sure? Well, what would you give it out of 10? Just out of curiosity. Because I didn't mind 9 out of 10. I'd give it an 8 out of 10. Okay. Probably more like an 8.5. I don't, I don't know. I'm not ready to give it a 9. That's fair. I, you see, I, part of me, I think about this movie a lot. And uh, I'm always like, maybe it is a 10. And the more I think about it, the parts I don't like are just, they, they yeah. I have to mention food real quick. Oh, because the ice cream. The ice cream, but also the, the chili dogs. Oh, Yes. Steamed in beer. Oh, yes. That I, that looked good. You know, another quick little interesting tidbit is that I thought it was interesting that Frank Sheeran described killing a man the same way he described those chili dogs. Oh, yeah. Both same amount of passion. Both same amount of precision. For a three-hour, three-and-a-half-hour-long film, it's pretty good. It's almost like a history lesson of Jimmy Hoffa. Yeah. And it was nice. I enjoyed it. I did, too. Nine out of ten. All right, so don't look now. 
Yeah. Is our BFI movie of the week. This is the first. No, it's not. We're still. These have all been from the director's list. Okay. Which makes a lot of sense, but we'll get to that in a second. Would you like to take it away and describe, just give a, a quick introduction for the audience of Don't Look Now? Yeah, Don't Look Now is a movie, an English movie from the early 70s. Our first English movie. Um, about a couple whose daughter dies in a tragic accident at their home. We see them a few years later, a few months later. Um, the f- husband is working on restoring a church in Venice, and they are uh, haunted by her her presence. I don't know about haunted, but they meet two old ladies, and one old lady says she can see the daughter, and it just opens up this whole other can of worms. Uh, this is the first movie on the list that I have seen previously, and you have not. Yes. I was very curious, because I know there's a lot of... Um, uh, interestingly enough, British people, Edgar Wright and Mark Kermode, that speak very highly of this movie. And I watched it a few months ago. I picked up the Criterion during the first sale of the year. And I picked it up and I watched it and I thought, okay, this is pretty good. There's a lot of stuff that I liked, a lot of stuff that I didn't. But it was one of those movies that in the back of my mind, I always thought, okay, I'd love to come back to it. Because um, one of the another huge reason why I love it, uh, or I was interested in seeing it, is that it was a huge inspiration on one of my favorite movies of all time in Bruges. Um, so I watched it again yesterday and I think I like it even less. <laughs> really? Yeah. It's not bad by any means. I just think it's very, it's a little too cryptic for me, but I will say in, in, uh, in the expanding on my earlier thought, I can see how a director would love this movie because I really do enjoy a lot of the presentation. I just feel like the specifics of the story are a little needlessly cryptic. Did you like it? How uh, how did you feel? I I enjoyed. Don't look now, and yeah, that's about it. Yeah, <laughs> see it. It was an enjoyable experience. I found myself, I got more than halfway through before I paused it for the first time, which is a good sign for any movie that I'm watching at home. So it kept my attention and I was engaged throughout and curious to to see the ending. Like, what is the answer to this? Did you know about the ending beforehand? No. Because I did, unfortunately. You did. I did, yeah. I heard about this. I ending. had seen a picture of the dwarf. Yes. In a review. There was the Guardian did a review and that's they had pic- her picture there. Yeah. And I didn't other than that, that's the only thing from the movie. And that's not even a spoiler, necessarily. Because I'd forgotten about I think so. Well, I didn't know where that came in. No details, just an image. Okay. So you're saying it doesn't spoil it for you. And Certainly a freaky dwarf. Very freaky dwarf. Kind of, uh, kind of, also a little cute in a, uh, like a puppy dog kind of way. From behind, yes. I don't know about the face. Uh, well, the thing is, like an old person. Like, yeah, I don't know. Thing about this movie is that, like I said, a lot of the stylistic stuff I found to be a lot more interesting this time around. I think it's a very beautifully shot movie. Yeah, I love the way they capture the city. Again, I can see the parallels to this in In Bruges because In Bruges incorporates a very similar um, sort of atmosphere. 
because it's it's you know it's cold you can see the people's breaths it's it's a very gothic almost it's like a to quote uh ken a f-ing fairy tale town um i like the world i feel like the the language barrier definitely isolates these characters even further because really it's only I, I don't know their names i'm gonna say man and woman the husband and wife it's really only the husband who speaks italian so the wife definitely feels a bit isolated and you do have those familiar voices in the english ladies but it almost feels like they're in a sort of purgatory in that regard um i like the lens flares i i, I there's a few of those in the movie uh there's a there's a lot of sequences i enjoy not only because of the visual aspect but i think the editing is pretty fantastic as well Editing was great in the movie. Specifically the opening scene with you know where we see the daughter die. I think there's a lot of interesting cuts that tell a story without really telling a story. Um, I think the scene on the little um, elevation thing when he's checking the mosaics and it the yeah, I think that's a very exhilarating scene. Um, and I love uh, the fun way- fact. I was reading up about that and Donald Sutherland actually. I think the stunt the stunt man couldn't do it. Yeah. And Donald Sutherland did it, and apparently, if he had let go of the rope, would have would have actually fallen. Like the the safety cable would have snapped. Yeah, that's that was something that I looked up my first time too, because there's a there's a decently close shot where you can see him hanging, and I'm like, is that actually Donald Sutherland? Because he's like facing towards the camera, and I was like, wow, fantastic. Because I love Donald Sutherland. See, I'm not I'm not as big on him. Um, I don't know. There's something about his face. I prefer older Donald Sutherland. He makes a good old man. He does. And but younger Donald Sutherland, I don't know. He doesn't doesn't grab me. Well, that's the thing. Visually, as an well, actor, that's the thing is I I like both of these actors, the husband and the wife. But I felt like they were a little wooden in this movie. Really, you thought? I think Julie Christie is her name. You thought she was a little wooden? Because I got a bit more from her. I think it's on purpose that he's a bit. He's definitely well. It's he's definitely supposed to be kind of distant because I get the feeling that he is desperately trying to let go, bury the past, whereas the wife is trying to sort of get closure, the kind of closure that he thinks is too painful to even consider. Um, and in that aspect, I think they were fine. I just think a lot of their lines to each other were weirdly wooden and I felt like they didn't have the greatest chemistry. A huge problem I have with this movie is the fact that I never really felt their grief. The beginning that her daughter dies and obviously it's tragic and I think Donald Sutherland sells that well. But Well he's obviously, when it cuts to Venice, it's sometime later and he's obviously doing everything in his power to not think about that. Yeah. And, you know, we get little glimpses of the sort of grief that they're trying to bury. Like when, you know, the the wife meets the old ladies and they start talking about her. And then when the wife tells the husband and how he reacts to this news, you can definitely see that there's a bit of grief. But I just, I never really got a sense that these people were grieving over the loss of their daughter to an extent that I felt was real. Uh, it might have been more impactful if he had been more kind of visibly kind of falling apart because of his grief well you don't yeah you don't necessarily need like you know melodrama no. and i got this sort of sense that the the movie tried to showcase that by making him kind of a workaholic but i don't think he was as egregious a workaholic to where i made that connection 
No, I don't think there's any connection between him and his grief. He just looked like a diligent worker, not somebody who was trying to bury his head in the work to... Yeah, it almost, like, at the end, when he's following the dwarf in the red coat, it's... I'm almost questioning why. <laughs> like, you don't... I don't I don't see... I haven't gotten the feeling from the entire narrative that you care... Yeah. ...about your daughter this much. Yeah. Well, I... Um, I... And that you have fallen to a place of irrationality. Because in order to see some uh, a child in a red coat that reminds you of your child most people would leave it at that and maybe be a little sad yeah but i'm and i'm not sure i was totally convinced he got to the point where he would follow that red coat into this creepy abandoned building and for some reason lock himself in yeah i don't know either i guess he's trying to prevent it from escaping i don't i don't get that whatsoever See, there's a lot of, there's a lot about this that just, it's kind of like the problem that I had with last year at Marionbad, where I'm like, okay, I know this is supposed to be a puzzle, but I'm not interested in what the puzzle could turn out to be, so I don't care, you know? And there's, there's a few things that, you know, I, I don't understand, I don't understand what the dwarf is supposed to be, I don't understand this implication that Donald Sutherland has this some sort of gift he doesn't know about. Ugh. There's just a lot of this movie I don't really understand, and I don't care to try to. I don't know. I, I get the feeling. Like, I personally feel that the dwarf was too, as a solution to this whole thing, was too removed from the situation. Kind of random, almost. It's set up, obviously. But random. Like, I'm not sure. I think there there might be some kind of greater thematic significance of, you know, he finds a dwarf instead of his child and the dwarf uh, meat cleavers him to death. But I, I don't I don't know why. I, you know, it's just there. I'm like, okay. It, it felt very much like a mystery where the, it turned out the butler did it and you had no idea that it could have been the butler the whole time. Just like, okay, cool. What does that mean for the narrative? It, it... And clearly, like, his – I realized that he, at the end that his ability as – with the second sight was him having premonitions of his own death. Really? Okay. Well, yeah, because oh, he, he sees, sees her the in the boat. Yeah. And that's very clearly evoked in the image of her going to the funeral at the end. The kind of – the symbolism at the very beginning of the blood on the the, the picture – and the one in the red coat, the dwarf in the red coat, is in that picture. And it's... Uh, I'm trying to think of a good example, but I felt that this kind of narrative of where the twist ending of, oh, it's not his... It's not some kind of ghost or anything. It's a, a murderer. And that he was having premonitions of his own death this whole time. I felt that kind of narrative where it's a twist and that you've been you've been shown one thing the whole film thinking it's one thing and it turns out to be something different. I feel like that narrative has been done better since and that the it wasn't set up or developed enough to where I felt like it was a complete idea. It was a beginning of this kind of narrative. It's definitely like the I think probably the first thing 
first movie that was edited quite in this way and had this idea, the elements have since evolved. And I've just seen other movies like this that I might have gravitated to more that diminishes my initial viewing of this. Yeah, um, so wait, the, the dwarf is supposed to be the killer? Yeah. Oh. The dwarf was the killer the whole time. I had no idea. I just thought the dwarf was some sort of, oh, like, I thought so, at least. I thought the dwarf was supposed to be his daughter. No, I guess that doesn't make any sense either. I, yeah, see, I don't know. Because th- then that, because if that is true, the implication is that the dwarf is the killer. That's just ridiculous. That there's a, a little dwarf in a red coat going around killing people. Yeah, the movie is kind of ridiculous. And not not in a way that I think works to its benefit. I'm being a little hard, but I will say just for the benefit of anyone listening, in case they haven't seen the movie, I don't know. I mean, spoiler alert, you should have already watched it. Because it is, I think it's worthwhile watching. I think so too. I think it is probably the most, strictly because it's an English language film, but beyond that, I think it's the most accessible of the movies we've talked about so far because it's a horror film. No. What? Lay Samurai, easily. No, Lay Samurai is the best film we've watched. I think it's the most accessible, too. Really? Yeah. I mean, once you get no. past the subtitles, no. I think it's pretty... Okay. I don't know. I think for all its strange editing, Don't Look Now is the most uh, traditionally structured narrative of yeah, maybe. all of this. Can we talk about... Because Lay Samurai is just... It does have that very slow pacing. That's true. And you have to be in the right mood for that. In addition to the subtitles. Okay, can we talk about Donald Sutherland clapping cheeks for about five minutes? Sure. Why? (laughs) (laughs) The whole time I'm watching, I'm like, this is... Both times I've watched it, I'm like, okay, this is well done, but why? Why this long and why this graphic? What does this say? Well, I think I read that the Nicholas Rogue... Yeah. He thought that there weren't, there wasn't an, he didn't want the whole film to be scenes of a couple arguing. And so he threw in the sex scene at the end. That was like an afterthought after everything else. And it is very interestingly edited. It is. It's definitely one of the more graphic sex scenes, especially given the time period. Oh, yeah. I just, both times I've seen it, I just feel like it's completely unnecessary. Well done. But unnecessary. Yeah, I'm trying to think of a counter-argument, and I can't. Because <laughs> I'm not averse to sex scenes in movies. I think there's some really good ones. I love the Shoplifters one. I love the Handmaiden one. Well, every year, I think we should we c- should create a new award uh-huh. that we should award every year. And it's the, the best awkward sex scene of the year. <laughs> Because uh, last year it was clearly Shoplifters that won this award. See, I, I like. And this that year, one. of course, Parasite wins best. Yeah, that's true. That's sex scene, awkward sex scene of the yeah. year. It's clearly an award that needs to be out there more. More people should know of these <laughs> these scenes. It's an Asia exclusive award, apparently. <laughs> well, this might have won for this oh, year. You know what? We'll get into it later, but maybe Booksmart as well. Yeah, Booksmart as pretty awkward one. <laughs> Yeah, I watched that last night. Yeah, I I was wanting to talk to you about this movie wait until after the podcast, but I feel like I feel like awkward sex scenes in high school movies is just cheating. Anyways, uh, anywho, we see Donald Sutherland's bare ass for about five minutes. Um, cool. He just walks around the apartment naked. He does, and at that, I think there's 
an argument can be made that it's to show that the grief hasn't necessarily taken the passion out of them. And I can, I can see how one could think that. I just didn't think it needed to be that excessive to say that. Well, you do. I think there is a statistic. I don't know where I heard this, so it could be wrong. But that most, if a couple, a married couple has a child die, they are much more likely to get divorced. Yeah. And that makes sense. Which is sad to think about. It is, but... It's sadness upon sadness, but in that, thinking of that, because I was thinking about that, this film does make it clear that they're not that kind of couple. Yeah. That they are kind of still happy together. And I got the sense that... I got I got a decent amount of chemistry between the two. I just feel like a lot of... A lot of the emotions of these characters was implied rather than shown. There's also... The film was had some like kind of random sexuality thrown in here and there like the the say not the seance but um when oh yeah when when she starts channeling it and the the, one of the old sisters and definitely very sexual starts moaning and it's kind of it's kind of random it is interesting interesting directorial choices there's bold directorial choices being made and i can see well that's why i can see this being a director's movie because it's one of those things that i feel like a director would see take elements of it that worked and apply it to their own movies i.e in bruges but as somebody who is just watching it on on its own merits it is okay i'm noticing a trend chandler of movies that we don't necessarily like all that much, but we do find very interesting, and from a, a stylistic point of view, of oh, this is something we can learn from. Yeah, and then that's about it. But but don't look now was a bit more for me. I did enjoy don't look now quite a bit. Just a, just as a movie, just the simple narrative. Yeah, I do enjoy it as well. I can just see how this is more influential than good, and now I'm terrified for the earrings and Madame Day. I don't want this to be like that. All right. So, does it belong on this list? <sighs> yeah. Very, very, very low. I can say yeah. So, for me, I I would say that when this list was made, 2012, yes. Sure, I can see the argument for it. I think enough has come out since then, yeah. and in the early 2000s, stuff has aged enough, where if you were to make this list again, I, I think uh, something else deserves a spot. Yeah. Sure, like near the end of the list, this is a good place for it. I can see it. I can see the argument for it being on here. And I don't necessarily disagree. But if it comes time to make this list again, I think something else should probably get the chance. It is not as infuriating as last year at Marion Bad. It is very competent, if a little muddied. It is not a waste of your time. I think an hour 46, hour 51, however long it is, perfect amount of time. You're either really going to like this or you're kind of going to like this. I can't see anyone really hating it. Yeah, this is the first movie that I can just say, in general, to anyone, you can watch this. And you, you might get something out of it. I think there's a, you might like it. There's a little something there for everybody. There's something there for horror enthusiasts. Something there for architects and aspiring architects. Something there for perverts. It's for everyone. <laughs> Fun for the whole family. Oh, yeah. Fun for the whole family with Donald <laughs> Sutherland's bare ass. His bare ass. <sighs> Are we done? Yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> do we, do we, are we supposed to say what the next 
week's movie is. Oh, oh, that's right. Give me, give me one second. Okay. All right. So next week. So next week we have the earrings of Madame De, which is a French film from 1953. Looks very chic. And it's the first movie that we will be watching that is on the critics list. Number 101 on the critics list, on my version. I'm excited for, because I can see why directors choose these movies, but I I think my tastes align more with the critics, or at least I'm hoping. Yeah, we'll see. It'll be interesting. I Both of us have not seen this before. so This is something that I didn't even know was on our list, and I bought on the Criterion sale, or the Barnes & Noble one. Because I watch a lot of the Criterion behind-the-scenes stuff in a, on a lot of the Wes Anderson ones. He talks about this movie a lot. So I bought it, and it was just a very nice little coincidence that it was on our podcast so uh, so early on. So I'm very excited to watch it. Well, for those of us who do not have the Blu-ray Criterion release of The Earrings of Madame Day, it is on the Criterion currently streaming on the Criterion channel. It is also on Canopy for free with a li- public library card. And, of course, it is for rent online. Yes. Yeah, uh, were you going to disagree with no. me? <laughs> it is, Let's have an argument. It is definitely for rent online somewhere. Probably YouTube. Yeah, well, some movies aren't available for rent online. I know, I learned... Don't Look Now is a little hard to find. Really? That's interesting. Yeah. Well, again, that's another one that I own the Blu-ray for. Soy Cuba for me was hard to find. Actually, it might not have been hard to find, and I just didn't want to pay the money. That's fair. Shh, don't tell anyone. 